Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of Tip of the Spear with your Missoula County Commissioners. I'm Dave Strohmeyer. I have with me Commissioner Josh Slotnick. Commissioner Winita Vero is unable to join us today. But last week, the three of your commissioners uh, were in Washington, D.C. for the National Association of Counties Legislative Conference. This is an annual event held in Washington. It's an opportunity to join in D.C. to hear from federal elected officials, folks with federal agencies, and also provide an opportunity for elected officials, particularly county elected officials, to interface with our members of Congress back in D.C. There's uh, upwards of 2,000 folks who attend this conference. And it's just a great opportunity to network with our colleagues across the country. And this year, uh, we were treated to a speech by President Biden at the event. So, uh, and Josh, you had to leave early. I had you, to leave early, that. yeah. If I understand it right, uh, President Biden was once a county elected official. He was. Uh, he talked to us a little bit about his experience as a, I believe he called it a county supervisor. But yeah, if ever there was someone in the uh, the highest uh, elected office in this country who understands county uh, elected official perspectives yeah. and, and experience, it, it's uh, our current president. That's great. Did he have any nuggets to share uh, around being a, a county elected official? Well, one of the, the nuggets, and, and this kind of shades into uh, current policy, is empathy for the position that we're in where there are federal dollars available and how often is it the case that we struggle with them getting diverted and hung up at the state level and yeah. haggling with state government, uh, not only here in Montana, but our colleagues across the country mm. face a similar situation. He mentioned that specifically and was very uh, cognizant of the importance of trying to get those dollars directly to local officials and, and local government. I've not heard anyone in the presidency oh, uh, uh, articulate that, so that was super encouraging. Yeah, that's great to hear. I, I keep hearing this phrase when we talk about local government, that's where the rubber meets the road. We're actually the entities that spend the money to deliver these services, and if we don't have the money, we can't deliver the services. It was great to hear President Biden call that out as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we are the rubber and the road here, yeah. and uh, and we hear a lot about roads, among yeah. other things, and trying to get resources to help with the transportation infrastructure. So, Josh, I guess what what were some of the highlights for you? Oh. Was this the first time you'd it, been to one of these? It events? was the first time I'd been to one, and uh, I can go off on highlights. One of the big ones for me was this. So you're sitting at a, at a table or in an audience and realizing that everybody next to you does a similar job. They work for a county government somewhere else too. It, it was quite easy to start up a conversation kind of instantly. And it was great too, to see the diversity of people. I mean, we live in a pretty white place. Uh, this was just the opposite the, All of humanity was represented and not, not just in how, in, in how people look, but also in the populations they represent and the types of places they represent, you know, deep urban to deep rural. One, one kind of take home from this was when I started chatting with people was to realize how small our county is. Yeah. So for us, we're big, right? We're the, you know, the, the second biggest and not by much are we the second biggest. And I might say the biggest in terms of being an economic powerhouse. 
when we chat with pretty much anybody else at this conference, they would I'd say, how many people in your county? They're like, oh, it's not that big, you know, for, for Georgia. It's like 1.2 million. <laughs> That's the over the entire state of Montana. I heard this over and over again. Everybody's county was huge. And other thing that was really different is that most of these other really large counties had a different government structure that looked much more like a city government, mm -hmm. just larger, where there would be 11 or 13 or 15 county commissioners and their duties were entirely legislative. And then they hired a county manager or a county manager was elected. It was much more common to see this person hired. And that person did all the executive stuff, had direct reports, managed staff, et cetera, was the top of a pyramid. And the county commissioners would meet up once a week and have their meeting the way the city council has a meeting. And they had committee meetings in between, but they didn't do anything executive. And when I reflect on our roles, it feels to me like 98% executive. We, we, our legislature doesn't give us a lot of space to make laws or rules and we can pass the parking resolution here or there. And that's very meaningful for the folks it affects, but it's pretty small in what we do. I feel like mostly what we do is work with staff to do programs, to help them do their jobs to get stuff done. That's how it feels to me, like we actually accomplish things. And that was really different than most of the folks I interacted with. Yeah, likewise, it, it really uh, was all over the map in terms of the types of governments, the size and scale and scope of responsibilities involved. Because here for Montana, we actually had a pretty decent delegation go we from did. Montana, probably a dozen or so uh, county commissioners and Montana Association of Counties staff. It's all relative. We're, as Missoula County, considered urban in the state of Montana, but uh, joining us on the trip were some really small uh, rural counties no in the state of Montana, and we talk about differences in responsibility. Some of these county commissioners from rural eastern Montana counties, they oversee entire departments, whereas... We oversee the department head. That, 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 that's right. So uh, I don't know that they're actually out there running the road graders themselves, but just by virtue of, of smaller scale and the necessity to stretch resources, they're much more hands-on than, say, we are mm -hmm. or that some of these large urban counties uh, would be across the nation. Yeah, for sure. And definitely a very different spheres of concern. There is some commonality, but it's hard to find commonality when our, I'd say our biggest issue facing our society here, I'm going to say is housing. Yeah. It, and we were talking to someone in a small rural county and they don't have a housing issue. They're not, it's, it's not, it's not part of their concern. If we talk about uh, mental health and homelessness, it's not part of their concern. They have concerns of, and that they have tons of miles of roads and very little resources to take care of those roads. They have concerns in that their schools are losing population and have to consolidate them and students have to sit on buses for hours at a time. These aren't our concerns. It's not like it's impossible to find common ground, but it is a challenge. And in that space between us, I'm afraid has landed a bunch of suspicion mm -hmm. that you're not like us, you're something different. We've heard that you're, you're not, not positive. And there's some work to be done for us to bridge that, not just us, but everyone involved. And I could really feel that chatting with some of the, the other Mako folks. They were totally civil and nice, but definitely some suspicion. Yeah, and, and I think, as with so many things in life, just being present with other oh, folks. Uh, that's I, the I answer. Think, I think it's important. Yeah. Uh, sitting down and having meals with uh, our fellow 
commissioners across the state. It was great, and th that is the answer. You recognize someone's humanity, and then the suspicion starts to erode. But when we are literally, you know, eight hours apart or 400 miles apart or something, uh, it, othering is quite easy to do. And you mentioned housing. Yeah. So, so, so one of the beauties of of this uh, uh, of this gathering that we just attended was that we were able to interface with and rub shoulders with some, even though there's there's a whole range of, of types of uh, counties and local governments represented at this event, we came into contact with some very similar local governments and, and challenges, for instance, mountain communities and, and the ho challenges associated with housing. So yeah, I'd uh, say that, that was my favorite meeting. The conventional wisdom is the best conversations happen in the hallways that the sessions are kind of fine, but you really, the good stuff is in the hallways. And that's typically always true. I did actually go to one meeting where the best stuff was in the meeting and it, <laughs> and it was called mountain towns and housing. I'm like, yeah, that, that fits us. And I wanted to, I've made some notes here because I wanted to pass yeah. on some of these takeaways. And these are what I'm going to mention here were similar between all the communities that presented. And there were folks there from places in California, Nevada, Utah, and Colorado, Wyoming as well, Jackson Hole. So we're 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 in that we're in that same group. Some of these take homes were, uh, as one guy said, "You're building housing. You're not making a labor camp for the ski area." I mm. thought that was kind of a catchy way to phrase it. And basically, what he meant when he unpacked it was, the best sort of large-scale developments are where there's a diversity of housing, and there's all kinds of data out there that shows when folks who don't have a lot of money live next to people who have a little bit more money, they actually do better. When we segregate by economics, we cement a caste system around economics. But when we blend, people seem to do better. So if, in, if you're going to create 300 units of housing, some of them need to be market rate. Some of them should be adjusted for people at 120% of the median wage. Some should be at 80%. So you get a blend. And when then there's a blend, it seems to make everyone's life better. And you're also providing space for all the folks who need a place to live. What I heard in these mountain town situations was that it wasn't that there was no place for poor people to live. There is no place for people to live. Mm. And some of those folks pour coffee and make 18 bucks an hour, and some of them are physical therapists and make $40 an hour. It doesn't really matter if you don't have a place to live. You've got to move somewhere else. So that was the first one when creating a, a large-scale housing project, diversity of housing. Next one. It turns out that a lot of people are losing bidding wars to cash buyers. Crazy, right? So a lot of these, these places are creating mechanisms where a person can become a cash buyer for a couple days. There's a way, a mechanism we can work it out with public support and a bank. So it's through partnerships. So for a little while, you have $500,000 in the bank. And then as soon as the deal is done, you become a contingency buyer again, and it looks normal. But for a little while, you can compete with someone flying in from Connecticut who actually has $500,000 in cash. And this has made it possible for locals to be in a competition for buying housing. So unpack that a little. I yeah. mean, what does that look like? I'm, I'm looking for a place to buy. Okay, so, let's, so you go get pre-approved for a mortgage. So you're bankable. You are pre-approved. You are, you are set. You're, you're pre-approved to borrow $400,000, let's say, $450,000. Through a partnership between a bank and the county, $450,000 is set up in an account for you. You can't sign off on it. You can only sign off on it if someone from the bank signs off on it. But when you go to put in an offer, you can say, cash, 
and everybody signs off, you hand them the $450,000 in cash. And immediately, as soon as the ink is dry, your loan from, from First Security actually kicks in and starts paying back the money that you borrowed. So you're not messing around with making an offer, then having to go back to the bank and, and all of for, that. For a moment in time, you are a cash buyer. Ah. And this can be done through partnerships. So it would have to, the full faith and credit of the county and a bank or two or three or four that want to participate. And this isn't a new thing that I'm making up here at this table. This was talked about in this meeting that because Otherwise, locals, even who do have the money, are getting outbid by cash buyers from other places. Right. So uh, the next one, and we're, we're doing this one, which I'm excited about. Counties really inventorying all the land they own. Not so much so they can sell it all off, but maybe some of it they can sell. Some of it they can partner with developers. Because if the county owns the land, they can set the, the rules of how the development's going to be. So let's say we owned 10 acres of highly developable land that wasn't being used for something really wonderful right now. We could say to the developer, great, you can have this land to develop it. We're going to hold title. You don't have to buy the land. You just saved X millions of dollars. But 40% of the housing you build has to be set aside for people who are at 120% of area media income. And 40% can be market rate, and 20%'s got to be for people who are really poor. Right. And if we just took out the cost of buying the land, they could actually do that and possibly make it pencil out. But it first comes with that land inventory. Which doing, we are doing. Which we are doing. Yes. Emily Brock and staff are, are deep into it. Then the last one, and then I'll stop because I know this yeah. is getting, getting long. And this is one that I know you've heard me go on and on about because this is my new favorite housing idea, and I'm going to try really hard to work with our staff and our fellow commissioners to create something like this here. This is the use of a deed restriction as a tool. So communities in Colorado that were facing this issue where there was literally no housing for workers. Apparently almost all at once in the town of Crested Butte, a handful of shops that were beloved in downtown all closed. Not because they weren't selling their wares, but because no one could afford to work there given that they had to travel from so far away. So folks in Crested Butte and shortly after in Vail came up with this idea. Here's how it goes. They would give you 10% of the value of your house today in cash, 10% of the appraised value. And in trade, you put a deed restriction on your house that limits who can purchase your house. So now the only folks eligible to purchase your house are people who work in Missoula County for 30 hours a week. One person in the household has to fit that. They can, they can be two or three or four, as long as one person works 30 hours a week, this house is available for them to purchase. The guy who runs this program in Vail, the words he used were transformational. Now Vail is very different from us, very small, more geographically bounded, population isn't even close to ours in terms of size. But because people were taking them up on this offer, housing was now available for locals to rent, not just to buy, but to rent. So, so did, did that also come with restrictions on how much you could then sell your property it's for great, in the future? Great question. That's super good. So other places have looked at this deed restriction tool as not so much as who's going to buy the house, but how much the house costs. Mm. So they would do something like this. And this is an idea I think we, sh we should look seriously at here. We offer a person 10% of the value of their home if their home is 120% of median home value. So if you live in a $2 million house up in the mountains, this doesn't qualify. It's got to be 120% of median, which is basically we're going to say an average house to a slightly above average house. We give you 10% of the value. 
In trade, you put a deed restriction on that property that limits appreciation. That's how much the house goes up in value. Limits appreciation to 5% a year. Not compounded and not inflation, just 5% a year. So if we look historically at the last 11 years, this is according to uh, Econ Northwest. If I remember this right, wages went up like close to 15% and cost of housing went up 109%. Right. That doesn't work. Wages and housing should be rising at roughly the same level. Then people like folks at this table who have a regular job can buy a regular house. Well, if we cap appreciation to 5%, we brought down the rise in housing. So it is kind of commensurate with the rise in wages. So over time, that house that we put a 5% appreciation cap on, five years from now, it only went up 25%. Well, five years from now, your wages could have gone up. 25%. You could afford that house. And it's kind of a long game. The longer the time horizon, the more affordable the house comes, costs. And one of the reasons I was so excited about this, not just that all these entities were doing it, which is kind of proof that it works, um, was that it costs so little to create a financially attainable house. So for 10% of the cost of a house, we created attainability over time. If we were to go build that house, we would we would pay 100% of the cost, sure. right? So for a million dollars, you could do 20 houses. If you had a million dollars, you could build two. So uh, th that was one I heard a lot about and I'm really excited about us pursuing too. Yeah, I was in that session also and, and it was uh, super exciting to hear some of the success stories in other communities. Still daunting knowing there's a huge challenge before us and some of the tools that other states have to generate revenue for programs like this are simply not available to us in Montana. So we're going to have to do a, a whole lot more of creative thinking true. on this. But Very true. But it's, it's, it's good to hear our, our colleagues and associates in other states and their, their ideas. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was inspiring. It also felt good to feel like we're not alone. Yeah. And, and that, wow, uh, this is a really broad scale problem. It isn't, um, it's not going to be solved in, in one spot forever. Well, Everybody's being <coughs> afflicted. I mean, how often have we heard from folks as if Missoula County, Mis the city of Missoula is, is an anomaly and it's because of onerous regulations or whatnot that, that we are like the only place on the planet that is suffering the challenges we are. And, and we aren't. I mean, there's no. other folks uh, throughout, uh, particularly the Rocky Mountain West in these communities that have uh, high, uh, uh, high density of amenities that yes. attract yes. folks. Uh, because don't, don't get me wrong, uh, I don't think any of us want to see the days of teepee burners and, uh, and our beloved river in the center of our community seen as a, uh, as a, a landfill, uh, uh, a dumping ground, uh, in which case, yeah, uh, people won't be coming here in as great a numbers, but, uh, but the, uh, the adverse effects of that are, are not anything we want to go back to either. No, I mean, we, we've really been the victims of our own success, and this whole situation has been exacerbated by COVID. So now we're in a spot where anybody can live in Missoula and work anywhere. For a long, long time, anyone who has lived here for a long time would 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 note this. You could choose to live here, but you'd be taking a pay cut. Yeah, and and to some degree that kept growth at a mo at a more modest level. Well, because of what's happened with COVID, you can work on the coasts, either coast, and live in Missoula. Living in Missoula means you're at a, at this wage structure that I just mentioned that you kind of you eat that. You don't take you don't take high wages. You get to live here. Well, now you can work in Portland 
or San Francisco or anywhere on the East Coast and work off that wage scale but live in Missoula. Right. And enough people are doing this, and it's not a bad thing, it's just part of life right now, that this distorts our housing costs. So people who are living here but taking working off a wage scale that's much more robust have helped to drive the price of housing up. And the fact that anyone can do this has increased demand nationally. So now we're in this spot where we're attempting to address national demand with local supply, and people who work here on our wage scale are pitted against people who live here but work somewhere else. So we have to create some intervention. We have to intervene. And this is something that was a real take-home message from this, uh, this meeting that we went to, that if we don't intervene, the arc is absolutely predictable, and we will end up where all these other places are, where a median house price in Jackson is over a million dollars. Right. That is where we are headed. There's probably no stopping that, but we have to create some intervention so it's not that way for every person or for every house. Well, a couple other things that uh, that I found pretty important and meaningful at the event are one that there was a cluster of uh, events surrounding the arts, arts and culture. Mm -hmm. So I serve on the National Association of Counties Arts and Culture Commission, and there was one session that looked at arts as an economic driver, and it was great hearing from folks in. Utah and, and Minnesota and, and the southeastern United States about how the arts are, are not just simply window dressing niceties that we can do without, but really are a critical, both economic driver in communities and also strike to the heart of what it means to live in a civil society. Uh, and I think there's lessons to be learned here, ways in which, as we're thinking about infrastructure in our communities, the, the ways in which infrastructure can either unite or divide communities, and how can the arts play a role in, in helping cultures converge and, and, and be celebrated, uh, that rich diversity in our community. So that, that's, I think you might have been in one of those Yeah, it was, it was a really inspiring one. And it made me feel great about Missoula and Missoula County because a lot of the things people were talking about, we're doing. Yes. So I was going off earlier today about the Big Sky Documentary Film Fest, just this incredible artistic celebration. And in pre-COVID times, every theater is packed and you couldn't get a hotel room or an Airbnb. I mean, this is a major economic driver. People come from all over the world for the Big Sky Doc Fest. Yeah. It's real. No, and then we are, we are doing that and embodying that right here in Missoula, Montana. I agree. Uh, at this conference, we actually attended some meetings where uh, they were meetings you wanted to be in, uh, <laughs> but also a lot of good stuff happened out in the hallways or outside of the venue entirely, one of which was I had the opportunity. In fact, we all had the opportunity to meet with uh, U.S. Senator John Tester. I also uh, was able to meet with Senator Steve Daines, uh, with... Uh, uh, the Federal Railroad Administration, because as folks might know, Missoula County has really taken a leadership role in helping further the conversation to bring back passenger rail service to southern Montana. And it was super exciting meeting with Federal Railroad Administration officials and learning at that meeting that I had with them in Washington, D.C., that this route right through Missoula County, the old North Coast Hiawatha route, which ran until 1979, will be a part of the nationwide study that's required by the bipartisan infrastructure law, 
uh, our route will be a part of that study to look at it as uh, being potentially restored. So this is a big deal for Missoula County, the state of Montana, and with so much dismal news that we live through every single day. It's nice to have some bright spots yeah, like that. Congratulations. And if I remember right, you said $15 million was allotted for that study. Yes, our very own uh, senior Senator John Tester from Montana was the sponsor of this language and successfully got $15 million allocated for this study. So, and it's not just a study. Uh, once the study's completed, there are real dollars in the infrastructure law that will help with project implementation. And if all of that's not enough, uh, outside of the venue of the conference, we had a chance to meet with the director of the Bureau of Land Management. That was a real highlight, too. Who just so happens to be Missoula County resident Tracy Stone Manning. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's great to be able to have... Montana so well represented no at kidding. some of the highest levels of uh, the administration. Yeah, that we're, we're in a really good spot that way. And I have to say, our, 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 I wasn't able to meet with Senator Danes. I had to leave the day earlier. I'm sure you guys had a good meeting, but we were received so well by Senator Tester. He gave us an hour of his time, had staff in the room writing things down. I felt like we were treated really well and uh, made me feel like somebody's looking out for us. Yeah, both of our U.S. Senators were very gracious and uh, it's, it's great to see them carve out time for their constituents. So, I mean, we could go on for quite some time <laughs> probably, but uh, I, I think for me at least, suffice it to say, if folks are wondering what the county commission is doing flying off to Washington, D.C., it wasn't just some junket. It, it was an opportunity to, uh, to spend time with colleagues across the country to learn from them and bring those ideas back here to see what we can implement. Well said. Well, with that, we'll see you at the next Tip of the Spear, yeah. everyone. Thanks for listening.